0: and now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey
1: Janoff. All right, welcome to another episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. <laughs> and today, we have a special guest with us, a, a fellow financial advisor to doctors, Tyler Olson of Olson Consulting, LLC. Welcome, Tyler.
2: Glad to be here. Good to see you both.
1: Likewise. And Tyler, he is a a great follow on Twitter. For anyone who's on Twitter, uh, at Olson Planner. He's very active in finance-related conversations with the medical community. He's also the host of the Money Mediator podcast. And you might be thinking to yourselves, "Why are we bringing a, a fellow competitor on the on the podcast?" And and honestly, there's more doctors out there than any of us can single-handedly serve, so not not too much of a an issue where we'll be butting heads. Uh, but we thought it'd be nice to get another perspective, other than Rochelle and I's on the podcast on some of these topics. You know, when you, when if you interview multiple financial advisors and you ask them on certain topics, there'll be a pretty uh, clear consensus, but on others you might get 10 different recommendations from 10 different people. So you know, it can help to have multiple perspectives to see what aligns best with, with your goals and, and what you're hoping to accomplish. So with that, Tyler, maybe why don't you start off by giving us a little background on you and, and your financial planning practice.
2: Sure. Um, so I've been, I've been a, uh... An advisor and planner for about 15 years, almost 16 now, yeah. And uh, I worked for a, uh, a broker-dealer, a more traditional brokerage firm, uh, for about 10 years, um, and then uh, shortly after that, I registered my own uh, financial advisory firm in the state of Michigan. So I'm registered now as a fiduciary uh, with Olson Consulting, and um, I provide financial planning services, uh, primarily to medical professionals. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, it's a, it's a, it's a really great, uh, business to be in because the world of finance is continually changing. It's complicated. Even for, even for people in our business, we're constantly having to double check and make sure things are, are accurate in our head. And, um, like, you know, so I can't imagine, you know, how difficult it can be for people that aren't in our business to not only have knowledge, but to have confidence that they know what they know. Um, And so it's 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 a privilege to be able to assist other families to make good financial decisions.
1: Agreed.
0: Yeah, I feel like with medical professionals, they have enough to keep on top of with changing things on their end that they shouldn't have to worry about staying on top of financial changes too and legislation and all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's just a barrage of information. I mean, I mean, for I mean, for physician families, even more so, they're just they get so much junk mail from every direction. And so the amount of information that's just hitting them, hitting their inboxes, hitting their LinkedIn accounts, if they dare to go in there, uh, (laughs) it's just overwhelming. So uh, it's it's good to I mean, we're just like, you know, a few voices here and there. But we got to shout as loud as we can.
0: Absolutely. I think Corey and I have spent a lot of time talking about various topics, but there was one thing that you were particularly interested in, which was just focusing a little bit more on the defensive side of the financial plan and spending some time on that. I think people get overly excited about saving for retirement and doing like buying a house and college savings and all of that kind of stuff. But it's really important to have a good defense in place so that all of that stuff is secure, too. Um, so I'm excited to spend a little bit of time on that and talk about, you know, like the, the less exciting things maybe that are also very important, like emergency reserves and insurances. <sighs> yeah. You're, big breath. Yeah. Tell us what you're thinking, Tyler.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it is bo- it is the more boring stuff. And I just I mean, so many so many people, they like talking about investing opportunities and compound interest and dollar cost averaging and um, arguments about active management and passive management of investments and there's a place for all those things. But I know, I know of too many examples of people just nine months ago who made really rash decisions with their investments because they didn't have a good foundation. You know, the markets took a big hit and like, I don't think any of us have ever seen such a reversal and things popping right back up. And here are, uh, I mean, fortunately I think not the majority of people who invested did this, but there was a handful of people that sold out of fear. They sold because they were insecure. They sold because they were looking at money that was invested in the market and they were worried about next month or they were worried about three months from now or even six months from now they were worried about their ability to continue to produce income. Um, and when you have those insecurities, and you don't have the time to think, all of a sudden you're like, "What should I do?" And yet that fear can propel us to do something that you later regret doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that taking a lot of time to examine one's own, like, examine one's own uh, heart, you know, and how we respond to stress, how we respond to uncertainty should be the the starting point of deciding how much insulation do I need to surround my financial plan with so that when things don't go right, or not even right, because obviously we're expecting drawdowns in the market, but just in the moment when we see those numbers going down, you know, just when things are are, um, choppy, you know, that we're not going to be doing something that we wouldn't normally do. If we're in the right mind. So yeah, like when we, yeah, Corey, when you and I are talking about, uh, bulking up emergency reserves and insurances, like when we talk to, talk to clients about this, they're like, yeah, that's, you know, that's great. But like, what about the investing? What about the backdoor Roth IRA? I'm reading all about this and those are the more exciting things. And I'm finding that I'm having to be like, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's, let's look at your foundation.
1: I think some of those conversations will be hopefully a little easier to have um, or receive better moving forward because this year has been a good reminder. You know, the the thought before 2020 was that physician jobs were basically recession-proof. Didn't matter what was going on, people still got sick, so physicians would have jobs. But we saw... You know, predominantly with specialists, but even with generalists, you know, a lot of practices had to either shut down or, um, you know, limit the number of patients they were able to serve to, to just the, the most you know severe ones, and um, you know, a lot of financial ramifications from that due to the lack of revenue coming in. Uh, a lot of a lot of people had to take pay cuts. Um, so so that's why we, we have the defense in place, you know, in case things don't go the way we want them to go
2: so yeah well yeah like that that reminds me of uh like a number of doctors that i know who you know they a lot of them they they make the decision they're like am i going to be on the employee track you know the more conservative approach or am i going to get on the partnership track do i want to start participating in the productivity side of things am i willing to work uh you know under the you know based on rvus right Mm -hmm. and when you take that position that more like an ownership position that's not a bad thing but yeah certainly like that that can cause incomes to fluctuate and the you know the narrower our margin for you know our our living expenses and how much how many bad things can happen before we fall on our face you know that that that's when all of a sudden it's like you know the conservative approach is pretty nice (laughs) Yep.
1: So let's maybe start with emergency reserves. You know, I think the, the conventional wisdom in the industry and probably just in general is three to six months of expenses saved up. But what are your thoughts there? I think you mentioned maybe even having more than that. But tell us a little bit more about what you're thinking.
2: Well, I think that, I mean, in part, it depends on what's realistic. Uh, I mean, some people, you know, depending on your your savings rate and where you are at in your training, like, if you know, residents and fellows, they can't have... You know, in many cases, they can't have like a year's worth of of emergency savings. But it's something to work toward. I think, that, I think that in our minds, we think, okay, I've got debt payoff perhaps, or I have, you know, I'm trying to save for a home, and then I've got that three months of emergency savings that I need to build toward. And then once I get there, I'm good. Like, I'm like, you know, you kind of have like this sense of like, all right, I can move on to other goals. I
0: checked that box. I think...
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess I think that the healthy thing is to just keep building it for some time. So I think it's not—it's important to not be too hard on oneself. Depending on where you're at in your career, a year's worth of savings might not be achievable. But once, once you get to the three months, work towards six. Once you get to six, work toward nine, and, and so on. I personally, I think that 18 months is would be an ideal situation an 18 months worth of savings but not like not to not to the point where you would totally forego other things like debt payoff or buying a home you can be incremental in working toward it so that you're giving it its due attention and so that you get there within a reasonable amount of time without cutting yourself off in other respects.
1: So why 18 months and what would you consider a reasonable amount of time?
2: Uh well, I mean to me 18 months is a good number because you know, say say you lose your your job or say your say your production is cut just because of something like, you know, this pandemic or something else that's specific to your practice. 18 months is a significant amount of time to either look for new work or to be able to just kind of fill the gap with your existing job. Like if you have if you have some work still with your practice, but just not enough, 18 months of monthly expenses, even if you were cut down to part time, that's actually three years worth of coverage for you it gives you plenty of time to think and i think when when financial disaster strikes whether it's nationally or just to your own family when you have that much time to be able to continue to have the assets that you need to live on and you're not panicking you know you're not trying to get like some part time work at i don't know wherever just to try to make ends meet but you still have those couple hours in the evening where you have some time on the weekends to to think and to be able to have conversations with your partner or spouse if if you're married. Um, That time is really, really valuable so that if you realize something is permanently wrong with your job or if it's just a matter of waiting and seeing, you have that freedom to be able to think and make sure that that if there is something to do, you can figure it out, and a year and a half is plenty of time to do that. Now, as far as how long it would take to build up to that, that that varies widely because it depends on how much debt you have, it depends on your cost of living where you live now, it depends on your family's budget. Um, so this like the savings rate would be a significant part of that. I just think that assuming that high interest like credit card debt is gone. And that you have created a payoff plan for your student loans, whether it's through the PSLF program uh, or if you're paying it off yourself, and you've put yourself onto a a, a payment stream that's predictable. Um, taking care of those things while also continuing to add to the emergency fund um, is is the way to go. So I know that's kind of a non-answer, but it, it's it's a very it is very much dependent the individual circumstances
0: it's also a good way to be like reducing your cost of living like your spending happens are, are going to be quite a bit lower if you're saving that much and so your savings that you do have will probably stretch out a bit farther
2: yeah yeah like yeah, on one end it yeah it definitely benefits on both sides
1: yeah, Ro- rochelle and i's favorite answer to everything is it depends it uh it really does depend on the circumstances and it's so like, true I, you know, yeah. And you're, you're you're spot on, you know, I mean, you know, the conventional idea, oh, six months of living expenses, that should cover most emergencies. It, it coincides with the waiting period on your disability insurance. So if you're disabled, you've got six months of income. But I mean, you know, like I've got a, a client who, um, you know, the timing couldn't have been worse. End of 2019, she had put in a notice with her hospital that she was going to be leaving. You know, it has to be, I forget if it was like a 60 or 90 day notice. You know, doctors have, it's not just a two week notice with doctors, it's longer. Um, but she was going to be leaving in late February and then starting her next job I think April 1st. So she would take the month of March off, you know, because it's always good to take some a break between employers. Well, the next job in mid-March or late March told her, yeah, we, we can't hire you anymore. Sorry. Um, and it took her about seven or eight months to actually get a new full-time well not even a full-time position it was a locum's job and even the locum tenants options were were limited just given the the staffing uh issues and and you know revenue restrictions that hospitals have imposed um and she's you know so fortunately income's coming in now but it's not the ideal scenario and she's still looking for other opportunities so we're 10 months in to this you know, pandemic now, and, you know, even if you had a year worth of emergency reserve, if you're down to two months, you're going to start to get anxious. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, the more you have, the more cushion you have, the more time you can take, and you don't have to just jump on the first opportunity that comes.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, at the same token, I think it's important to note that this is not a realistic goal right away. So, you know, for, for uh, residents and fellows, um, I would say the 18-month mark is nearly impossible for most of them, um, and that's, you know, it isn't a failure at all. It's just that my concept of the 18-month emergency fund is a long-term goal. I mean, it'd be kind of like, you know, asking a resident, you know, a resident, Where's your million-dollar IRA? You know, like, of course, you don't have it yet. It's something that you work toward.
0: So on the other end of things, we have insurances, which people are (laughs) hesitant to buy. They feel like it's a waste of money a lot of times. And, And sometimes it can be like pulling teeth to get people to properly protect themselves and their family. Um, mm. when you're talking to people about things like life insurance, how do you approach that? How do you convince people that it's an important part of the plan? Um, sometimes they know.
2: I mean, in my, in, in my, I mean, in my experience, getting people to buy life insurance is, is, uh, a little bit easier mm-hmm. than disability insurance.
0: Interesting. Um,
2: just because, I don't know. I think because I think... Maybe people that provide financially for their families, they can't envision a life where they would be alive and unable to provide for their family, which I mean, it's, it's very, very sad when that does happen because you're like, you're there and you're seeing your family and you're not able to care for them. It's a very difficult thing. And so I think we naturally try to depress that concept like that, well, that, or repress it. Like that's, that's not something that will happen to us. Whereas death, I mean, you know, things can happen. Car accident, um, is, is unfortunately not that far or it's not, it's not impossible that we could lose our life. Uh, but in either case, it does take some conversation. And I mean, with life insurance, um, I normally just, as we, as I'm talking with people about their debt, like obviously with student loans, you know, if they die, then, then it goes away. But like with their mortgage, if they have a home um, or if, uh, you know, if the person that we're talking about who's insured is the primary provider of income, like, uh, you know, like a doctor and, uh, you know, if they have children or if they have a partner and um, if they were gone, like all of a sudden there's expenses would keep coming and the income isn't there. So we talk about income replacement. And you know, so obviously debt payoff is the first part, um, you know, death-related expenses like burial and so forth are accounted for, uh, but then income replacement is a bit more subjective because it depends on what, you know, if there, if there is another source of income and what the other partner thinks about how much income to replace. I mean, because like, I mean, if you're talking about like a 35-year-old doctor Who could theoretically be working for the next 25 years making half a million dollars you know are you gonna get you know are you you gonna get like a 10 million dollar policy i i mean some i guess might want to but it just depends like the the family might be like well i mean maybe we need like three years of income replacement or five years or whatever so that though that component that last one is uh it depends as you said
1: that's where our job comes in To help them figure out that calculation based on, you know, family dynamics, is the spouse working or not, you know, kids, are we paying for college, are they adults or young children or, yeah, so...
0: I do feel like the conversation around like how much coverage for should like a non-working spouse or the spouse that's maybe providing less of the income, like that conversation can be a little bit more difficult. But there's so many times when I talk to clients and I'm like, if your partner, your spouse wasn't there, what would you want your work situation to look like? Would you want to spend more time with your kids because you're partner isn't with them like like if you think that you would have a decrease in income because your partner isn't there that's a big deal and it's it's like it's so important to make people think about like what is the reality of that situation if it happens
2: oh yeah no that's i i totally totally agree there the even if even if one partner is not working Mm -hmm. and there's kids they are absolutely working (laughs) And, mm-hmm. and they're probably working. They're probably working harder than the doctor in some respects with kids. Um, th- there is a there is a tremendous amount of work that that the non working uh, spouse contributes, and for them to all of a sudden be gone. Yeah, I mean, I know. Like, I think about you know my own family. Like, if if something happened with my wife, like <laughs> I'm not I'm not working, <laughs> and I don't know I don't know how long it would be. Like, it's a very it's a very dark hole to look into, mm-hmm. uh, but through the course of a planning conversation, be like, let's kind of just think this out. Let's put this into some not hard and fast numbers, but just you know, conceptually, what would you need in order to make sure that your family is still financially taken care of in this situation? So, yeah, no, that's a that's a very important part of the defense plan.
1: As we're talking about this, I can hear my. Wife in the in the kitchen trying to feed our toddler lunch and dogs barking and we're just chilling in here, shooting the breeze on a podcast. Like, oh yeah, she's working way harder than me today, and you know something happened to her. Now I have to hire a nanny or you know at least restructure my work drastically and still hire some sort of part time help. So there is absolutely an economic hardship if the non working spouse um you know particularly if, obviously of children it, the non-working spouse provides a huge economic uh, benefit to the family that it would be costly to replace so get life insurance and I think <laughs> like to, to your point earlier about it's easier to, to to get people to wrap their head around life insurance and disability I think you know twofold one is just kind of easier to comprehend either you're dead or you're alive there's not any middle ground there and just you know societal propaganda has conditioned us to accept that oh if you have a family you get life insurance it's just what you do you know when you drive a car you get car insurance when you buy a home you get homeowner's insurance that's just what you do but disability for whatever reason it's kind of been swept under the rug as you know something that people don't really think about talk about but in reality you know a disability will probably affect more of you listening right now than a untimely death you know just the odds of an untimely death happening between you know before you get to retirement age are pretty slim but you know there's a much larger chance that that you or your spouse will, will incur a disability and most likely from an illness you know like i've got several clients right now i'm working with who've developed various conditions and they can't operate anymore they can't you know you know work a full day you know got one gal going through chemotherapy and like can't work a 50, 60 hour work week while going through chemo. It's just not an option. And depending on how long that lasts for and the you know, fallout or ramifications from it, assuming you, you survive, like you may not be at full speed for quite some time. So, you know, it's important to protect that income with a rock solid disability policy too, if you rely on your income, of course.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and like, I mean, and, you know, doctors with their, their specific skill set. They um, can't just get any old disability policy, as I know you know quite well. Um, so, um, getting a policy that uh, gives due respect to the specific skill set that has been trained for years, so that if there is a relatively diminutive uh, disability, but it still prevents them from doing procedures um but that could still allow them to do clinical work for example uh that sort of a dynamic is unique you know in the world and so having a disability policy that meets that need is critical so that you know with with physician families if something something that would be relatively minor of an impact on other families could have a very big impact on, on, a physician family.
1: And I would even stretch it out further. Like I think other families, non-physician households underestimate, you know, the odds of a disability right. impacting them. You know, yeah. You know, a surgeon, the things that could disable that person or a dentist, for example, who's hunched over all day. There's, there's more things that could disable those professions than say a, a CPA, an accountant, but like if you, develop arthritis, you have, you know, hand issues, can't type, you know, you develop a hearing loss, sight loss, like that's going to impair the the office worker too, his ability to do their job. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things that could render people disabled that are just overlooked. And uh, I think we don't appreciate the, the risk until it actually hits us.
2: Yeah, we do not like buying insurance uh, because we think <laughs> we're not going to need it. And then the moment you do need it, and you and you have it, you're like, oh, thank goodness! I'm so mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I have this insurance.
1: That's the first thing people look for. Yep, once they have that predicament that they're uh, inflicted with.
0: Yeah, we talk to medical professionals at like all different stages of their careers. You know, people who maybe are like finishing up med school, people who are in residency and fellowship, and then attendings, and people approaching retirement. Do you have any particular kind of broad recommendations for how much people should get at different stages of their career? Obviously, there's an it depends in there somewhere, but just generally speaking?
2: I mean, for for medical students that are about to graduate, I believe that's the earliest at which they could possibly get a disability policy uh, for their, uh, for their uh, career. Um, and so that's when the conversations could start. I think that it's important for every... Incoming uh, intern to at least have a conversation with somebody about the costs and benefits of doing it uh, when they start their intern year, versus waiting a year or two, or waiting until they start fellowship if they go to that, or when they're actually becoming an attending. Um, there's pros and cons to it. There's there's risks and rewards. Obviously, the the cons of of doing it early on is that you're taking on a, an expense that could be hundred to 150 bucks a month. And for a resident that's pulling in probably, I don't know, like $3,100 a year or sorry, $3,100 a month, um, depending on what city they live in, that can be prohibitive. Um, But maybe not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a subjective conversation for each person, but I think it's valuable for them to have, have the pros and cons presented to them so that they can see, Yes, it would cost quite a bit. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, was it like, uh, you know, four four percent of your take-home pay? That that's quite a bit, you know, for insurance. Uh, but what are the cons of waiting? Well, you could develop an illness, like you mentioned, Corey. Like you could have something happen to you during residency that all of a sudden you would not be insurable anymore, and you just went through all that school and all that training, and now you're limited in what you can do with what you've learned, that can be very, that could be a very uh, difficult reality to accept. So um, it's a, it's a matter of what is realistic and then prioritization of how conservative you want to be with covering your short-term risks. Because like, it's kind of like, I don't know, to, to me, like the attending physician and like the salary that they start to have at that point is kind of like the investing. It's like the excitement. It's like the money's finally coming in. All this is happening. But if you haven't taken care of fundamentals, like protecting your short-term risks in terms of savings and insurance, um, you can really cut yourself short from those benefits that are coming in the future.
0: Yeah. I think the whole thing about priorities is really important too. Like you said, i I was talking to a female plastic surgeon in California, and obviously her quoted expenses her for disability were really, really high. And, I mean, she definitely had sticker shock, which makes sense, but then she was talking about how she wants to take on a $650 a month car payment. And, and it just it made me, like, I, had to just, I was a little angry. <laughs> like, you have the potential to make so much income. Like, I would rather that were a priority over your... Car, <laughs> but yeah,
1: yeah. Tyler's uh, answer of, um, you know, at the very least, have the conversation and look at it. Yeah, kind of the good cop answer. I'll be the bad cop and say, you know, unless there's <laughs> something preventing you from getting it, um, like health wise or just financially speaking, if you're like a single parent living in New York City as a resident. Uh, you need to get it. It's easier to get and less expensive when you're young and healthy. Um, you know, it's never going to go down in cost the longer you wait, and just you never know what could happen that could either render you disabled, which is why we get it in the first place, or like you said, Tyler, make you uninsurable to where you can't get it down the road. Like you know, I have a cousin who um, in med school he had lymphoma. He fortunately you know beat it. Or didn't miss a beat and was still able to to pass and graduate on time but um he's now uninsurable. He can't get a disability policy. Um you know the, so there's not much we can do at that point. Um there are a few uh, institutions across the country where you don't have to go through medical underwriting to get a policy where they have special relationships with insurance companies but those are are few and far between. So for the broad majority of you Sooner rather than later, before you develop a medical file, um, get the coverage.
2: <laughs> Good call, man. Good call.
1: <laughs> and then I think maybe looping back to, to some of the earlier uh, pieces we touched on, um, You know, we're, we're living below your means I think is worth maybe addressing a little bit more rather than breezing over, which would help you build up that emergency fund. You know and uh, I guess what are some thoughts you have there Tyler
2: um, I mean if I mean reducing one's expenses is a it's a limited game um, there are things that can be done but in the end it really in, in my opinion uh, it comes down to where, where you live and what you drive um, the other things like, groceries and subscriptions and uh you know lattes are they're they're more stress inducing than it's than the money savings is worth in my opinion in many cases um i uh I, i'm of the opinion that like the minutiae of budgeting uh is something that unless you really are like unless you're like a huge spender and you're just shopping all the time and stuff and I don't think like a lot of residents and fellows I most of them are realizing they've had to live on a tight budget for some time um I think most of the time it's a matter of addressing like what kind of car so like I mean I mean you you, you mentioned like that $650 car payment like that's ridiculous she is that a is, second like, year so
0: resident and she wanted to buy a Tesla <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that? No. Like, that's, that's a glaring, like, yeah, like, okay. Like maybe you need to make some adjustments um, and in your home too. Like I, I, I worked with someone uh, who lives in Chicago and you know, they're in an apartment that's like $3,200 a month and I've lived in Chicago and I, I know there are certain neighborhoods that are that expensive and you can't get away from it. But I also know there are some really great neighborhoods that are just a little bit farther away, and you could pay half that. So um, addressing those larger monthly fixed expenses, I think, is the main thing. And then, if you're really having, like, if you're honest with yourself, and you're like, you know what, I see this thing where it's like, ooh, subscription, sign me up, because it must be of good value, right? You know, there's subscriptions for everything now. So uh, I do, I do encourage people to, on an annual basis, purge their subscriptions be like, what am I paying for? Cause a lot of times you don't even realize it anymore. Um, and those, those can add up. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, once you've accomplished those things, I think it's fairly well, like this is what it is. This is what your cost of living is. Um, and then you need to like make the decisions about what your savings rate is based on that. Um, what sort of, you know, emergency fund you need to have based on those expenses. And the savings rate builds toward that, um, and then of course, all these other decisions about disability insurance and life insurance fall into place.
1: I think just nipping things in the bud early, you know as your income increases, try not to have your expenses increase proportionately with that. you know, let's allow for that delta to add to the emergency fund, save more for our future goals um, before increasing the lifestyle, and that'll help you get to that 18 months of, of emergency reserve sooner or pay Mm -hmm. off debts faster. And just for essence of time. Let's maybe switch to the, uh, the offensive side a little bit. So if you have a solid foundation, what does that allow you to do on the, uh, you know, the more investing, saving, achieving your goals side of the equation? I mean, it, it
0: allows you to,
2: it allows you to invest, you know, accepting a moderate amount of risk. Um, And I think the real benefit is not so much that, I mean, it it is, yes, that you have, you're putting hard, uh, your hard-earned assets to work so that they can grow and that they can compound. That's great. Uh, But I think the real value is that while you're doing that, you're not thinking about it too much. You're not stressing about it. Uh, You know, I tell I tell people don't look at your student loan balances all the time. You know, once a quarter at most, please. And I I feel the same. I feel the same way about investment portfolios. Like, they're like you know, if you if you have chosen high quality investments and you've created an allocation that makes sense, just leave it alone. Like, what are you gonna do? You know, go be with your kids for goodness sake. You know, go. You know, work on some projects. I don't know, like live your life, uh, delve further into your career, whatever is important to you. These things, I mean, there are some people that are like, they really like investing and they like buying and selling stuff. And that's great. Like, go ahead and do that. But for the majority of us, we want to, we realize that inflation is a real risk. And so we do need to put money at risk uh, so that it can have the potential to grow over time. Um, but Having that foundation of having a lot of savings and insurance protection will actually allow you to do that. Like sometimes, you know, you could say like, well, yeah, I don't care about it. But deep inside, you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm really stressed (laughs) about this. And now your quality of life is going in the tank. So like, 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 and you know, what's the point then? Right. So I think the I think the benefit is twofold. Obviously, you can grow your assets, but you can live more peacefully while doing it.
1: And think it gives you some more flexibility, too, with your life decisions. Like, if the market's down and you've had some setbacks, you don't have to sell investments at a low point, you know, to fill the gap while you're unemployed, for example. Going back to some examples earlier in the conversation, and... Uh, you're less likely to have to to deviate from that strategy that you determined is appropriate for you. Because setbacks are bound to happen. Yeah, this year's a little extreme. Hopefully we don't see anything quite like it again. But, you know, things are going to happen. The water heater is going to break. You're going to (laughs) need to replace the furnace. The roof's going to need to be repaired. Your kids are going to break all sorts of things in your house. You know, you'll come home one afternoon to see your eight year old with a hammer putting nails into the floor of your kitchen. Like it's just, it's going to happen. Like plan for those types of things. um, So you don't have to, to, you know, set yourself back from achieving your other financial goals. And then, you know, tying this all together, like if, if you're living below your means, you have a solid emergency fund, you know, more than a year worth of expenses, you got an investment strategy on track, you know, debts are are paid off or, or, you know, reasonable, on track to being eliminated, you have a lot of flexibility with your choices. Like, you could choose to take a job that's more uh, attractive to you from just what you'd be doing, even though it might be lower pay. You could work less. You could say no i'm i'm not taking night call anymore like pay me less but find someone else to do it i don't need the extra income my finances are in good order so there's a lot of benefits um you know financially and just emotionally psychologically mentally that that come with with all this stuff
2: mm-hmm. yeah we're talking about the wealth of time now oh yeah is yeah i'm i'm with you it's uh it's it's so good to see the results of good financial decisions early on so that you can control your time. That's, that's all. In the end, that's like so much more important than like your net worth or, or, uh, you know, how you know, big your investment accounts are. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a big believer in that.
0: And I think it's so important for physician clients, especially because they have to work so hard when they're in training Like, so hard. There's very little choice. You don't, I mean, you don't have any choice about how many hours you work and things like that. So to be able to get on track to have those kinds of choices early on as an attending is is probably a breath of fresh air.
2: Yeah, 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 for sure.
1: And then last thing I wanted to touch on that I thought was interesting, you tweeted a few weeks ago, or by the time this is released, maybe a couple months ago, um, that you want to get rid of the term financial literacy can you elaborate a hmm. little bit on on what you don't like about that term
2: well i mean i mean literacy in itself at least when i think of it makes me think of uh, you know developing the ability to read and write in the society in which you live in and i mean we live in a world where there is uh, you know not everyone has the opportunity to be literate uh, later in life, you know they might, you know, people who didn't have the chance when they were young, they can develop that skill, um, and so it, it varies according to one's opportunities and their circumstances. But if you do have the opportunity to achieve literacy, you can, you know, you get to a point where you can communicate, you can you can read books, you can you can write books, you can write letters, you can talk with people and have uh, communication with fellow humans. And that's a precious, precious gift. I think that it is a stain on the real privilege and blessing of literacy to apply finance to that because finance is like financial literacy as people, at least in my experience are talking about it, is trying to understand money trying to understand how it works in their life and how they can use it. And it is an important skill to develop. But unlike literacy in terms of reading and writing, financial literacy as it is termed and understanding the financial world is a never ending process. And it's not because uh, there isn't like enough intellect with people. It's because the large institutions and the way in which the world of finance functions is overly complicated. It's unnecessarily complicated. I mean, I'm in this industry, and I'm constantly having to recheck and make sure on things. I mean, tax law is always changing, and I do this all day long. And I'm always like, "Wait, I need to double check and make sure I understand this and read it again." Now, think about the like the millions of people who are not in the financial industry, and to like ask them, be like, "Are you financially illiterate or not?" I think that it is. I think that it's a demeaning term. Uh, I think that it's, I think, I think that we all have to just keep trying to adapt to the world as as it changes. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a replacement term for it. I just think that it's, there's a, there's a finite path toward actual literacy, but the path to understanding the world of finance is infinite and it's crazy and it's insane. And to try to make people that don't understand it feel like they're financially illiterate is offensive um, so that's why I said that
1: makes sense um, I guess anything else before we let you go here you want to add
2: <clears throat> um, well I uh, you know I'm grateful to be in association with uh, your firm um, you know you mentioned that there's there's lots of you know, medical professionals and their families that need that need help making good financial decisions, and so uh, you know we need more uh, advisors who can demonstrate empathy and compassion for uh, you know medical professionals, physicians included, uh, to help them in this regard. Um, and any you know anyone who I think I think what I would say to any uh, physicians who are you know listening to this episode. Is that it's really, really important that you advocate for yourself. Um, as if you're listening to this, you're likely trying to do that. Um, you know, those of, us, those of us who serve as advisors, and we're, our focus is on you, um, are. We, uh, I know I, I, I know I speak for myself and perhaps for you, that we really want you to be able to have your own footing. We want to support you in a way that helps you to not just. Uh, you know make good decisions, but to like know what you know and have confidence in it, and so that you're not you're not fully dependent on us, you know that you are able to you're able to have your own footing, and that the decisions you make and the control that you have is because of your own skill development, and that whatever gaps you have along the way we're happy to provide that support well
1: Absolutely. Said. <laughs> And where can people find you if they want more of you?
2: Um, well, my um, I'm most commonly found on Twitter. My uh, my handle is at Olson Planner. That's O L S O N P L A N N E R. And then uh, my website is Olson Consulting M I, as in Michigan. Olson Consulting MI.com. Uh, Yeah, I I try to provide as much free information as I can on Twitter. So if you have a question uh you want to talk about it come on there and we can have a chat and uh hopefully i can be helpful
1: there we go well thanks for joining us today
2: my pleasure you guys have a great day
0: you too We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff on LinkedIn under my name,
0: you can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Van Der Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Van
1: Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Affinity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog.